Well, this morning, we will meet a cook, a waiter, a shepherd. We will meet someone who is a homebody, yet a runaway. He was brother to a twin, and though a few seconds younger, by no means was he less smart. Someone call him shrewd, others deceptive. He's a man who would father 12 sons. They would go on to become 12 tribes. They would go on to become a country. They would be a nation who bore the name of their father, a nation named Israel. God gives Jacob this name, the name Israel. He gives him this name in fulfillment of his promises. Because after all, the story of Jacob is a story of God and the grace of God. This morning, we'll witness two aspects of God's grace, and we'll see them in the life of Jacob. Now, this word grace, this concept, it sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. You know the verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. In fact, many of the questions we ask, grace answers. We may wonder if God can overcome this present darkness, whether it's in the world around us or in our lives. But if God can give grace, he can overcome it. If God can give you and I the undeserved favor we receive, if he has that level of power and that level of authority, surely he can overcome darkness. Will God stick with me? What if I sin? What if I stumble? Sin will cause us to doubt God's favor. Surely his well runs dry. But in our account today, we learn that God is not only mighty to give grace, he is steady to keep it coming. You see, this grace of God is not some faucet that can't be turned off. Rather, it's a dam that's broken forth into our lives. It's a river which continues to run without ever stopping. That is the grace of God. We learn about this grace this morning, beginning in Genesis 25, verse 19. We pick up where we left off. We looked at the life of Isaac. This morning, it's the life of Jacob. It's the abiding grace of God. When we speak of grace, we speak of the unmerited favor of God. Remember, the operative word here is unmerited. To say it another way, grace is the free bestowal of his kindness. It's given upon one who has no claim to it. To fully understand God's grace, we must understand who we are. That you and I are are undeserving. The Bible calls us dead in sin. Children of wrath, that is God's wrath. Even enemies of God. And it's in this condition that God enters in our lives, into our lives, and saves us. This gift is not earned. We did nothing to merit it. And his grace then goes on to infuse every aspect of our lives. Consider some examples. 
Consider where we've traveled so far in this book of Genesis. God created Adam and Eve. They lived in a perfect world, but they disobeyed God. In grace, God did not destroy them. Rather, he gave them clothing and children. He gave them long life. The children of the children, their children, lived lives filled with sin. And God wiped, off the, wiped away the world with a, with a flood. But in grace, he saved the family. He saved Noah and his family. And in grace, nations multiplied upon the face of the earth. And these nations then gathered to unite, to make a name for themselves by building a tower, and God scattered them. In grace, God made a nation unto himself. In grace, he chose Abram and blessed him, promising land and seed and blessing. And in grace, despite the sins of Abram, despite the sins of Isaac, he kept his promises. You see, God is a God of grace. We see it today in the life of Jacob. Now, last time we learned that Isaac would have a son, two sons to be exact, and the Bible's commentary on their birth is a lesson on the sovereign grace of God. It's our first point this morning. It's the sovereign grace of God. Now, when you hear that word sovereign grace, you've noticed we've parked a word in front of the word grace, the word sovereign. Now, a moment ago, we spoke of grace as God's unmerited favor. When we speak of his sovereignty, we speak of his power, of his authority. And that is to say, putting these words together, that the all-knowing, all-powerful God, he freely exercises his grace wherever he desires. Ephesians 1 says it's according to the kind intention of his will. Well, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 21, Isaac's wife conceives. Last time we saw Isaac marry Rebekah. In verse 21, though she's barren, God caused her to conceive. But not all went well. She conceived twins. And verse 22, they're at war within her. And she prays to God, and as she does, God responds. Verse 23, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So before either child breathed his first breath, before either child knew right from wrong, God spoke. Two sovereign promises. The first, two boys would become two nations. As the storyline of the Old Testament unfolds, we learn that Esau becomes the nation of Edom. And Jacob becomes the nation of Israel. Secondly, there's a reversal here. It's a reversal of customs. The younger should serve the older, but God ordained the opposite. Just like Isaac would come over Ishmael, Ishmael being older, Isaac receiving the favor. Jacob being younger would receive favor over Esau. In verse 24, when Rebekah's days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. 
Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Well, here, Rebekah gives birth to, to Esau and to Jacob. And what sticks out about Esau is his, is his appearance. We, we note him for the way he looks. He came forth red. The color is used of King David later in the Old Testament. It, it's meant in very positive tones. Now David was ruddy or red with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. But there's more to Esau here than color. His whole body was like a hairy garment. That word is used to describe uh, the coat that the prophet Elijah wore. He's a pretty hairy little guy. But rather than his appearance, we know Jacob for his actions. With his first taste of oxygen comes conflict, gripping the heel of his brother as they're born. His name was called Jacob. In Hebrew, the word heal and the word deceiver, they're, they're closely related. Interestingly enough, we'll see why that is soon enough. But we see here that God chose to create two nations from these twins. And that God chose to make one of his people his choice nation and not the other. And that God chose to defy the norms of the time where the younger, or excuse me, where the older would serve the younger. And God chose Jacob by his own sovereign choice. Now, if you're at all familiar with church history, you know no shortage of ink has been spilled over this topic of God's sovereignty. Most Christians, if not all, believe that God is sovereign over our lives. The debate is over how sovereign is he? To what extent does he exercise control in our lives? I can assure you that after 2,000 years, I'm not going to resolve that for you today. But we will turn to the scriptures to see their commentary on God's sovereignty and on this birth. And this comes from Romans chapter 9. Paul's going to reflect back on this birth to discuss the sovereign choice of God. Romans chapter 9, verse 10, Paul writes, There was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born... And not had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So God chose Jacob. God determined how it would be. He made this choice completely independent of their works. It's also good to note here that God did not peer into the future to learn how things would turn out with Jacob and Esau and then make a decision because God already knows all things. He doesn't discover things. He's not informed by what will happen. God chooses. He chose according to his own sovereign will. You see, who we are has nothing to do with, with God's choice. These twins had not been born when God chose Elsewhere in Romans, the Bible tells us that none seek for God. What we do has nothing to do with God's choice. Romans 9.11 tells us it was not because of works. 
In fact, Isaiah will tell us that all of our righteous deeds are but filthy rags. God's purpose, according to his choice, stands. And Paul, writing this, I might imagine, anticipates a hand. If he's teaching this in a classroom, a hand goes up. And someone asks him, Paul, that isn't fair. That, Paul, is unjust. And Paul replies to that in verse 14 of Romans 9, may it never be. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Even so, a few verses later, Paul asks, does not the potter have the right over the clay? You see, God can do what he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants. That is the grace of God. And that is according to God's gracious choice and his great power. That is God's greatness. Grace, remember, grace is not owed. Especially when you understand the biblical verdict of the human heart. We do not deserve it. And God's sovereign choice stands. He chose Jacob, not Esau. He chose you and maybe not someone else. That's according to God's free choice. He's not being unfair because, remember, it's not owed. It's not unjust for someone to get it and someone else not to. And when you come to this vision of God, when you come to this view of God, if you believe this about God, it changes how you worship. It changes how you live. We realize then that salvation is not up to me. It never was up to me. I get to be part of God's plan. Someone mentioned in our Sunday school film last Sunday that heaven is a fringe benefit. I don't know about that in quite those terms. I understand what he's saying there. I definitely don't want to be separate from Christ in in hell. But to his point, my salvation is not first and foremost about me. It's about God. It's about the glory of God and his own display of sovereign grace. God is choosing and God's electing and God's deciding. God opened my heart to believe. And God's going to perfect it. And that means for you and I, we can wake up each morning without any shade of doubt that this God who set his love upon us will keep that love upon us and secure us. This also means, secondly, that evangelism is not up to us. God knows who he will redeem. He sets his sovereign grace upon whomever he wills. Now, he uses means to accomplish this. Faith comes by hearing. We go out and we proclaim the good news of Jesus, but we do it without any pressure. It's not up to us to twist someone's arm into some kind of belief or conversion. God does that. We simply deliver the message. We can do this with with complete assurance that it is up to God to open up hearts and to bring about faith. Well, thirdly, this means that you and I will never worship the same again. When we realize that this is about God, that God would give me salvation, that God would choose me, it's stunning. I've read what the Bible says about my heart. I've confirmed it in the way I've lived. And God's given me grace. 
It changes the way we live. Praise the Lord. And let me add this this morning. You can know if God chose you. It's actually quite easy. Do you believe the gospel? Have you received the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ? You can know for sure if you believe that message. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so none may boast. The Bible says salvation is by grace. God's unmerited favor, it's an invitation to you this morning to come to him and receive this this free gift. You're invited, you pay nothing. You do no works, you simply receive. We're told to believe, to believe that we have sin and believe that God's given us Jesus to pay the price for that sin. He died and rose again so that you no longer pay a price for your sin. And then lastly, you simply receive that gift. You come and be part of God's family. Come and and sing worship and take communion and be baptized and join a church and serve and evangelize. All of these benefits, God will give you grace to do them. You see, if you believe the gospel, God chose you. And if God chose you, God abides with you. It's the second truth about God's grace that we see in the life of Jacob this morning. Not only is there a sovereign grace of God set upon our lives, but there's this abiding grace of God. It remains with us. God chose Jacob, but that didn't make him perfect. Two episodes in his life will magnify this truth. In verses 27 through 34, Jacob will steal a birthright. In verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You hear in those verses a contrast between the two boys. Esau was a skillful hunter. Ironically, in the account we're about to read, he wasn't so skillful. Jacob was a peaceful man. Normally in the Bible, that word translated refers to having a a blameless disposition. That's not going to be Jacob. You'll see that in a moment. It appears as though in contrast to Esau, Jacob hung around the house. Many believe perhaps he was a, a, a shepherd or sheep herder in some way. Esau was a man of the field. Jacob lived in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. Once again, we're reminded that truly a a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Isaac preferred Esau over Jacob, but Rebekah loved Jacob. She preferred Jacob. This favoritism, it happened with Abraham in his household, and this favoritism is going to widen the cracks in this family unit. In verse 29, when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please, let me have a swallow of that red stuff here, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First, Sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I am about to die, 
So of what use then is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. One of the most expensive bowls of soup is sold in London. For $215, you can enjoy a Chinese delicacy. It takes five days to make. The soup contains shark fin, abalone, scallops, quail eggs, ginseng, and even gold. Apparently, some Chinese put gold in their food. It's a symbol of prosperity. Esau sold his birthright for, quote, that red stuff there. That's one expensive bowl of soup. In this account, Esau comes off like the beast he's supposedly hunting. Ironically, he plays this part. He's the skillful hunter, right? But not today. Jacob's in the kitchen, and Esau appears. He declares himself famished. In verse 32, he's about to die. What do our kids say? I'm starving. I'm starving to death. Esau seems desperate. Let me have a swallow of that red stuff there. We train our children not to eat this way. Hebrews 12, 16 calls Esau immoral and godless for his flippant trade, exchanging this valuable birthright for a bowl of soup. As you might have noticed, Jacob in this account is no saint either. He's certainly not about to share. He demands the birthright of Esau. The firstborn was to receive the largest portion of the family wealth, of the father's wealth. Later in Deuteronomy 21, it would stipulate twice as much as the younger. And Jacob takes advantage of Esau. Verse 31 could read, Today, sell me your birthright now. And you know that the Old Testament would hardly call this honest trading. As they say in the South, he's more slippery than a pocket full of pudding. <laughs> Jacob's cold. And he's conniving. And he's not done yet. He steals the blessing. He stole the birthright. He'll steal the blessing. In Genesis chapter 27, he now strikes both the son as well as the father. Isaac grows old. His eyes grow dim. He calls Esau, Esau, hunt and prepare a savory dish for me that I may eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. And with bow and hand, Esau departs for the field. Mom overhears. Rebecca plots deception. She uses her role as the matriarch of the family, to steal Isaac's blessing for her favorite son, Jacob. In fact, there's enough here to wonder if Jacob would have done this on his own. 27 verse 8, Now therefore, my son, listen to me 
as I command you. Three times in this account, she frames this plan as obedience. Jacob, to hear what I'm saying and do it is to obey me, your mother. She calls for two young goats. I will cook them, Jacob. You give them to Isaac. Receive the blessing. In verse 12, Jacob objects to this. Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me. Then I will be as a deceiver in his sight. I will bring upon myself a curse and not a blessing. He understands that maybe Isaac can't see, but he can feel. So she takes the goat skins. She puts them on Jacob's hands and on his neck. And she gives him the food and sends him to Isaac. Verse 18, then he came to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Get up, please, sit and eat of my game that you may bless me. Jacob lies. Something's off. Isaac said to his son, How is it that you... Have game so quickly, my son. I mean, Esau is a skillful hunter, but he's not that skillful. And Jacob said, because the Lord your God caused it to happen. He blasphemes. He lies about God. He invokes the name of God in his lie. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come close, that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. If he could sweat through that costume, he did. So Jacob came close to Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. That's the third lie he told, if I'm counting correctly. Verse 25, so Isaac said, bring it to me and I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. And he brought it to him and he ate. And he also brought him the wine and he drank. And Jacob came close and kissed him. And Isaac conferred the blessing upon Jacob, not Esau. Perhaps Isaac did not know the declaration that God made to Rebekah, that in fact the younger or the older would serve the younger. Maybe he hoped that his favorite son would reign, that in some way, God's economy, he would change this thing around. But remember, God's sovereign grace is an abiding grace. He is unchanging in his promises. And that night, the house of Isaac howled. Esau returned, and he prepared the food. Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. Isaac, his father, said to him, Who are you? And he said, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Isaac trembled violently. He literally shook. And Esau cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. That word is used to describe the 12th plague in the nation of Egypt. 
And Esau resolved, after my father passes, then I will kill my brother Jacob. What does a man in this position do? If you're Jacob, he runs. He goes off to Paddan Aram to Laban, the brother of Rebekah, to be sure he did have the blessing of his father to go there and to find a wife, but he had to get out of town and he had to do it yesterday. What does the God of abiding grace do in a situation like this? I mean, after all, this is Jacob lying, cheating, blaspheming, thieving, deceiving. On Jacob's journey to Paddan Aram, he stops for the night and he lays down. And in a dream, he sees a ladder with the Lord God standing above it. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What? Where was God? Where was God when Jacob dished up the red stew? Where was God when Rebecca tied the goat skins around his arms? Where was God when Jacob took the name of the Lord to lie? Where was God when blind Isaac asked, Are you really my son Esau? And where was God when Jacob betrayed his father with a kiss? You know where he was. He was right there. All along. God missed none of it. And when Jacob did his worst, God gave him grace. Don't miss the meaning of what I just read. What God had promised Abraham and Isaac, that's going to belong to Jacob. Land and seed and blessing. Verse 15 is amazing. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. This is the abiding grace of God in the flawed lives of his people. You can take your pick. Your worst sin this morning, your greatest struggle, your biggest shame, your greatest guilt. There is grace for that. The abiding grace of God gives you grace for it. It's grace through the shed blood of Jesus There's a book that begins with, with Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness. This is a book written by a man named John Newton. His is a very famous story of the grace of God. You see, Newton grew up with a mother who had very strong faith, but in the end, he decided to go his own way. 
He joined his father in the wilderness, the wilderness of the Atlantic Ocean, and his experience was that of the worst this world has to offer. There were things that he did to bring it upon himself. There were things that other people did to him. The English Navy, for example, forced him into service. He had to serve without any choice. He deserted. Publicly flogged before the crew, after being captured, he came oh so close to killing the captain, then killing himself. His life spiraled out of control. Newton writes, quote, I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes. I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my duty to tempt and seduce others. He got free from the Navy, but that put him in almost worse straits. He joined slave ships, transporting slaves involved in the slave trade, even commanding some of those ships. But the sovereign grace of God had intervened, and it changed his heart, and it changed his life. And Newton became a Christian. He became a Christian just like you and I, imperfectly, but experiencing God's grace nonetheless. He would go on to become an abolitionist. He'd go on to become a preacher. He'd go on to write a song to express the amazing grace that God had visited upon his life. He could never get over the grace of God. And in the sunset of his life, he writes, quote, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. That is a simple key to experience the grace of God. Know who you are and know what Christ does. That we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. And perhaps this morning, for some of you, this is the first time you're putting these things together. If that is true, come find me after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about God's grace. For others, this may be a reminder for us that God is gracious and that there is a never-ending river exploding through a dam of grace for daily living, grace in our struggles, grace in our sin. Grace will not leave you. Grace will be with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for being a God of grace. Thank you for seeing us for who we truly are and for giving us grace anyway. I pray for us this morning that you would help our hearts understand the depth of grace available to us and that you would help us to respond appropriately, worshipfully, gratefully. Lord, maybe there be none who leave here today who who don't experience that grace. Thank you for giving us grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.